We began on Sunday, Palm Sunday, to work our way through Jesus' Passion Week. Sometimes we call this Holy Week, the last week of his life. Sunday being the first day of the week, Jesus entered into Jerusalem. As I mentioned on Sunday, Jerusalem was a bit like a hornet's nest when Jesus came there. People were not only there for the Passover festival, the highest of holy seasons for the Jews, they were also very curious as to whether or not he would show up, what he would say, and what he would do. We know throughout the rest of the beginning of that week after Palm Sunday, or as it's sometimes known as the triumphal entry, that moods began to shift. The Jewish officials, the leaders of the religious affairs of the people were doing their dead-level best. They were hell-bent on destroying him. And we'll find as we move tonight from where we were on Sunday and thinking through Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem now to Friday morning, so just a few days later, that the mood will shift dramatically. And so we find ourselves tonight in Matthew 27, and we will talk tonight, we will explore briefly this subject of the sacrifice of the Christ. And I mean that in a couple of senses. When Jesus came for his public baptism by his cousin John the Baptist at the beginning of his public three-year ministry, John said about Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was the very purpose of why Jesus became a real human. He became a real human so that he could keep all of the laws that we did not and would not and could not keep. Furthermore, he became a real human so that he could lay his real human life down as a substitute for us. And so in a sense, his life, his, his incarnation, the taking on of a body was, was all about sacrifice. But he comes now to the end of his earthly life and he is going to willingly lay his life down. No one will take it from him. He was, he was in control. And while on the one hand, the Jewish officials believed that they were in charge, that they were calling the shots, we will find as we work through this text tonight, that that indeed was not the case. So why do we come together on Good Friday? Why don't we just wait until Sunday when the mood is expected to be really happy? I was meeting this morning for some mentoring discipleship with one of the guys in our church, and it was very clear at 7.30 a.m. this morning from the window of the new Panera that it was going to be a dark and dreary day. And I commented to him that that's sort of fitting. This is the kind of day where it's okay to be somber. It's, it's not as though, as I said earlier, that we're pretending that Sunday isn't coming. But throughout the centuries, God's people have set aside certain days to reflect on certain aspects of our faith. And so, though we will gather together on Sunday, for those of you who are really hardy, and want to come out early at 7 o'clock, there'll be a sunrise service. 
Um, you can wear your pajamas, if that would make you happy. Uh, then you can go home and change, and we'll have breakfast at 9, from 9 to 10, and then we'll have our traditional resurrection service at 10.30. We will celebrate on Sunday. We will, we will exult in, we will exalt the Lord Jesus and our Father for what He has done in securing our redemption. But for tonight, we focus deliberately on the cost that was put forward to rescue us from God's wrath. So why Good Friday? Well, first of all, I think we have to ask the question, why do we call it good? Today is my youngest birthday, and so he wanted spaghetti for dinner. And so that's one of the few things I can cook, so I made it tonight. And while we were at dinner, um, I surprised my third son because he had no idea what we were doing tonight. So even I fail as a parent. And he said, uh, we're going to church on Friday. And I said, yes. And I said, it's Good Friday. And he said, why, why would we call it good? This is the day that Jesus died. So that's a good question. So why do we call it good? The events of this day, about 2,000 years ago, were the worst ever known. The murder of the innocent Son of God was treachery beyond, beyond comprehension and beyond compare. The wrath of God and the grace of God met at the cross. The cross is proof to us that God takes sin very, very seriously. He was willing to punish his own son to take care of it, and yet his son suspended between humanity and heaven was God's clearest act of love. It wasn't just words anymore. It was incarnate love. God was justly angry for the innumerable sins of humanity. And he punished his son in our place. As the lyric from the song goes, God kissed a guilty world in love. That's why we call it good. Because on Good Friday, God looked down on a guilty world. And he rained his love down upon it rather than his wrath. Next, not only must we establish why we call this day Good Friday, but how is something that happened 2,000 years ago still relevant for us today? So Tiger Woods won the Masters on Sunday. I am no supporter of Tiger Woods and his character, but I love to watch him play golf, which then set me back looking and watching old Masters tournaments from years gone by. How many of you remember 1986 when Jack Nicklaus won his sixth green jacket? Any golf fans in here? I remember as a little boy, that's my, my earliest golf memory, watching Jack on the back nine at Augusta on Sunday in 1986. It's on YouTube. So for those of you who would like to go back and watch it, you can. I watched it with my oldest son. It might as well have been an opportunity for my son to think that I grew up in the 19th century looking back. I was, I was 10 in 1986. I thought that that was very modern, but they had huge glasses and huge haircuts and terrible clothing and wooden clubs. It, it looked like it was many centuries ago. Anything that's old doesn't seem relevant to us anymore. So why would something that's 2,000 years old seem relevant to us today? 
Up until this time when Jesus came and took on flesh, humanity had been waiting for redemption for thousands of years. The fulfillment of God's promise from the garden when he said to the serpent who led Adam and Eve into sin, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, there was a seed that was going to come from Eve to set things right. And it would be very costly for him to do so. But in doing so, he would crush the serpent and all the forces of evil. We have the same problem as all those who came before us, both those before Christ and those after. We lie. We lust, we are greedy, we hate, we fight. We want to be in charge. But Jesus, perfectly sinless, came to die for all of these sins and more. And furthermore, people are broken. An author that you need to read named Rosaria Butterfield, mark that name down, I encourage you to pick up a couple of her books She says this, We may never know the treacherous journey people have taken to land in the pew next to us. Let me read that again. We may never know the treacherous journey people have taken to land in the pew next to us. And people are looking for salvation. And so Good Friday offers us a window into the most momentous occasion of all time, the watershed day of history where God answered that question, can I find salvation? And lastly, we we celebrate Good Friday because even those of us who have already placed our faith in Jesus need to be reminded that, that we bear guilt. But we don't find pardon by making ourselves acceptable to God. Jesus has already answered this and offers us pardon forevermore. Furthermore, we forget that we were saved by the righteousness of another and we stray from solid footing on the firm bedrock of Jesus' righteousness and instead turn to the quicksand of our own self-righteousness. And Good Friday pushes back against that and says, I've already offered you my righteousness. You need not establish your own. You don't have to posture. Martin Luther, the great reformer, was asked by one of his church members 500 years ago, why do you preach to us the gospel week after week? And you know what his answer was? Because week after week, you forget it. When Luther died... I think in 1546, a slip of paper was found in his pocket, and it was a reminder for him, and on this slip of paper was written, we are beggars, that is the truth. And so Good Friday tells us that though we have no righteousness of our own, one has offered it to us freely. And so we come together tonight to remember what the Lord Jesus did on our behalf. So read with me, please, in Matthew chapter 27. We are going to pick up in verse 32 
You'll notice, if you are familiar with this text, that this is the text where Pilate allows the notorious criminal Barabbas to be granted to the crowd despite the fact that he was genuinely guilty. And the crowds who had cried out, Hosanna, on Palm Sunday now cry out, crucify him in regard to Jesus of Nazareth. And so Jesus is mocked, and then he is led away to be crucified. And so let's pick up in verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, this is noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and I can't capture the tone of that. I've tried to imagine the tone in Jesus' voice when he said that, and I don't even know where to start. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah, and one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Verse 51, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and he appeared to many. And the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. May God bless to us the reading of his word. I want to consider two simple thoughts from tonight's text. First, in verses 11 through 44, Jesus absorbed unspeakable suffering and shame in order to rescue us from sin and death. The Lord Jesus absorbed unspeakable suffering and shame in order to rescue us from sin and death. I will not take time to recreate the horrific nature of first century crucifixion. The Romans 
had gotten it from the Persians and the Romans had perfected it. It wasn't necessarily the initial blood loss from the flogging or the nailing of the hands and feet that would have probably killed the victim. They probably would have ended up suffocating to death because they would have sagged from their hands onto their feet. And when they tried to push themselves up so that they could uh, exchange air from their pleural cavity, eventually they would have to sag back down because of the pain and agony. And eventually they would just suffocate to death. Occasionally, They would last long enough that the Roman soldiers would come with a club and break their legs so they couldn't push themselves up anymore. So through the blood loss and through the various traumas of the day and then from probably suffocation, people would have died this horrific death. Any sort of execution we can in some way see as a horrible thing, but this was the worst of the worst ways to die. But Jesus did not just absorb unspeakable suffering because of what he went through physically. He absorbed unspeakable suffering because of what they did to him, what they said to him, and how they felt about him. Isn't it sort of shocking, and we talked about this briefly on Sunday, but isn't it sort of shocking that on Sunday they can recognize him as the son of David and cry out, save please, Hosanna, And yet a few short days later, they're calling out for his horrific and unjust execution. How do we explain such a sudden shift? As the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the church in Ephesus in chapter 6, we don't just wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against forces of darkness that are unseen. And that may seem a little spooky here in 21st century Western America, Yet it's true. There was concentrated diabolical influence in the people of the land. They acted like lunatics. It was animal-like behavior. The one who had fashioned them, had, had been their creator, who had come to offer himself to them and had never offended them in the, in the least sense, who had never broken a law, They cry out with bloodlust, screaming and and clamoring for his murder. It's as though there's a battle going on here. God's wrath being brought down squarely upon the shoulders of Jesus. Wrath that we deserve for our sinfulness and all the forces of darkness arrayed against him. Satan was doing his dead level best here at this point to destroy the Son of God. But as we've said a couple of times tonight, he, he wasn't a helpless victim. He, he willingly laid his life down for us. And yet this was a horrifically difficult thing to face. We know from Matthew 26, from the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here and while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup, this cup of suffering pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
this had been a plan that God the Trinity had come up with before the world was ever created. This moment did not happen by happenstance. It wasn't a plan B. It wasn't a detour. We know this from Acts chapter 4. For the apostles in leading prayer in the early church pray this to God. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So, so they're guilty. They're culpable for the murder of Jesus. But then notice this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So so who was responsible for the execution of Jesus? Was Herod and Pontius Pilate and, and the Jews, were they? Yes. But who else was? In fact, who really was pulling all the strings was his own father. Why? We don't have, we don't have kids' church or, or nursery tonight, so all of our kids are here tonight. Not one of us would lay our child's life down for another. We would lay our own life down, perhaps, but not our kids. You cannot touch my kids. We will go to war. that God had predestined that he would use the evil of men like Pilate and the Jewish officials to bring about his purpose of redemption, to keep his promise from the garden thousands of years before that one would have his heel bruised and in doing so would crush the serpent. Such conviction led the disciples to preach the gospel. This Jesus we find also in Acts 4. This is Peter and John preaching to the Jewish officials. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they, the Jewish officials, saw the boldness of Peter and John, this is after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus, this one that God had given as a sacrifice for our sin. And so I say to you, Jesus absorbed unspeakable suffering and shame in order to rescue us from sin and death. But there's more. In verses 45 through 56, the story comes to a climax because Jesus accepted abandonment by his father in order to reconcile and restore us to God. Jesus accepted the abandonment from his Father in order to reconcile and restore us to God. And this is the cry of verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The crown of thorns, horrific. Being beaten and spit on, being reviled, being questioned, being nailed to a cross, unable to breathe. All those things were horrific. But do you know the worst agony of the cross for Jesus? It was that for the first time in eternity since or past, there was a severing momentarily in the fabric of the Trinity, and I do not know how fully to explain that. 
But somehow the father turned his favor and his presence and his relational presence away from the son because the son was bearing the sins of humanity. And this was the greatest agony possible. We could look at it like this. Jesus temporarily underwent orphanhood so that we could be adopted as sons and daughters. This is the message of the cross. Paul says in Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, dear Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Why did Jesus willingly go through this agony? Perhaps the thing that he feared most in his prayer in Gethsemane. Why? So that we would not be slaves, enemies for eternity, but instead could be dear sons and daughters. And this is why we now share the same privilege of relationship with God that Jesus does. In Hebrews The writer says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And also from the book of Hebrews and Hebrews chapter two, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed, Jesus, to call them us brothers." When Jesus underwent temporary orphanhood, what was he accomplishing? He was reconciling us to God. And this is why the the temple veil, the curtain was torn into. If you know your Jewish history, there was a, a part of the temple called the holy place and then an internal place called the holiest place. And there was a curtain that separated the two. And only once per year could one man enter into that holiest place. It was, it was off limits to everyone else. And if you went in there, you would die. And when Jesus yields up his spirit, having been abandoned by God because he's bearing the sins of the world and God cannot look upon him, when Jesus dies and finishes the sacrifice, he cries out, not here in Matthew, but elsewhere in John's gospel, it is finished. All accounts have been reconciled and the curtain is torn in two thus bringing us into vital communion with God once again. Satan thought he had won the day. He was playing checkers and God was playing chess. He thought he was ruining and destroying the Son of God and God was overruling all of that to bring about our redemption, to make us sons and daughters and to give us full access to him once again. And so, 
Though this is a brief meditation tonight, I, I say to you that on Good Friday we celebrate, though perhaps in a serious and somber fashion, the fact that on this night Jesus absorbed unspeakable suffering and shame in order to rescue us from sin and death, and then Jesus accepted abandonment by his Father in order to reconcile and restore us to God. And for all the saints here who still struggle with self-righteousness and brokenness, we, we remember what Jesus accomplished for us with thankfulness and hope. Rick will come in just a moment and pray a prayer of thankfulness and hope on our behalf as a response to what Jesus has done for us. There may be some here who are still considering the claims of Christ and thinking through what Jesus accomplished on this day so many years ago. I say to you, my dear friend, you have no righteousness of your own. Join the club. But the Lord Jesus offers you his full access to God. He took your punishment. He took your shame and and your orphanhood status, and he gives you access to God in vital communion again. So I call you tonight to trust him. Before Rick comes and prays, and we'll sing one last song, you have your nails. As we sing our last song, um, you can do what you want. If you want to sit in your seat, keep your nail in your pocket or hold it in your hand, that's totally appropriate, and that's okay. If you would like to come forward tonight, we don't do altar calls in this church. I grew up doing altar calls in churches, but that's not what we're doing. But if you'd like to come forward tonight toward the front, you can come all the way up to this glass table if you like, or down here in the steps as an act of sacrifice and gratitude for what Jesus has done. You can lay your nail up here. There could be something you're struggling with tonight, um, some, some sin struggle that's really hard to overcome. This could be an act of faith for you to bring this forward tonight and say, Lord Jesus, you laid your life down for me. I'm trusting you. For some of you who are considering the claims of Jesus Christ, that he laid down his life for you to make you his own and give you access to God, this could be your night of repentance and faith where you come and you become one of God's children. So so you don't have to come, but if there's a few brave ones of you who would like to come tonight, you can even stay up here and pray for a moment while we sing. I invite you to do that in just a few moments. So Rick's gonna come and pray for us a prayer of thanksgiving and hope as a response to this text. And then we'll sing and I invite you if you'd like to come up and lay your nail down. We have extras if you'd like a souvenir and you want to do that too. So uh, you do as you wish. There's no pressure. Rick? As you hold that nail, there are two ends, obviously. One that reminds us of the end that pierced the Son of God and the other end that was driven in to the Son of God. And Lee has already talked about how there were human instruments of the crucifixion, Pilate, Caiaphas, the high priest, the Jewish leaders. There was God who predestined this plan, but there were you and I had a part in it as well because it was our sins that caused Jesus to suffer. And Martin Luther, as Lee has already quoted from Martin Luther tonight and his commentary in Galatians 6.17 He said, we all carry about in our pockets his very nails. In other words, there's nothing that we can contribute to our salvation. Jesus, all that we can add is our amen that we need, that Savior. And so with that in mind, let's give thanks to God. 
Lord our God, we are thankful tonight. We are thankful for your wisdom in providing this plan of salvation that you proclaimed from the garden that the seed of the woman would have his heel bruised and he would crush the serpent. We thank you for your plan, for your rescue plan to save and to rescue and restore people who were separated from sin, your people that you desired to enjoy your fellowship forever. Lord, we thank you for this plan that involves a cross, the cross of Christ. And we know that to some that's a a word of folly. It's a word of foolishness. It just doesn't make any sense. But to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. And we give you thanks for your wisdom in this amazing plan. We thank you, Father, that you did not spare your own son. How we would cherish and cling to our own children, but you gave your own son up for us all. And so we thank you for your willingness to spare your son And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you were willing to have that perfect fellowship that you and the Father and the Son have enjoyed forever, to have it broken when Jesus took on human flesh and came into this world. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you set aside your rights as God, that you humbled yourself and took the form of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We thank you that you were willing to bear that separation from your father when you cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We thank you that you fulfilled all the prophecy that we've heard read tonight from Psalm 22. We thank you for the hope that is ours because of what you have done that we can be forgiven, that we can be reconciled and restored and adopted, received and welcomed as your children, that we can be called by your name, that we have the hope of an inheritance with you and in your presence, and that our greatest treasure, our greatest hope is to share eternal life with you beginning even now. And so, Lord, we are thankful, we are hopeful, and it is only because of the cross of Christ Because of the great love he showed, no greater love has ever been shown. And so, Lord, now as we worship you and sing of the great love of Christ, we are thankful and hopeful, and we worship you and thank you in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.